You're listening to audio from Ascend Church. For more information about Ascend or to access more gospel-centered tools to grow as a disciple of Christ, visit ascendkc.org. Today I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew 2, a familiar story to most of us for the Christmas season. It is the story of the visit of the wise men. And if you don't have a Bible, would you reach in the seats in front of you? You can grab one of those Bibles and find Matthew chapter 2 on page 807. I'm going to go ahead and read the passage. And what I want you to do is ask questions of the text. I'm hoping that you will not check out. I'm hoping that even though this will be a story with which you are familiar, with which you have sung many of the details through Christmas songs, that you will engage with the text, ask questions of the text, look to see Christ and the gospel in the text. And I pray that as you do, you will not only gain learning, but that that will transition into living that will impact you this week, next week, and for the days to come. Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, it says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. And all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." When Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared, he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I may too come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Embedded in this familiar story is this concept of pricelessness. You know, how we value something will be evident in the way we respond to it. So if we value something or we value someone and we say that we value it, we can actually demonstrate that and will by how we respond to that thing or person. This can be very negative in our lives. In fact, I'll illustrate that by asking the team to put a picture up on the screen. This is a hobbit by the name of Smeagol. Now, Smeagol was obsessed with the item that he holds in his hand. In fact, he was introduced to this ring by a relative who had found it. 
And that obsession began to grow. In fact, it obsessed him so much that he actually killed that relative in order to possess the ring. Many of you familiar with the novels or perhaps the movies know that that obsession actually impacted Smeagol. It changed his appearance. And this is how Hollywood has portrayed the appearance of Smeagol. Next picture. (laughs) Through that life of obsession. It changed his appearance. It actually changed his name to Gollum. And the priceless value that he placed on that ring actually had a very negative impact on his life. But there can be a positive response to something we value. The the positive response can actually change the disciplines of our life. It can change the perspectives of our life. It can actually cause us to make decisions in our life, not for our best interests, but for the best interests of others and the glory of Christ. And and I think we're going to see that contrast between the negative Smeagol Gollum and the positive glory of Christ in this familiar account. Would you look at the big idea in your notes? The prospect of God's abiding with us and in us is a crossroad. It's a crossroad in your life and mine this very third Sunday of Advent. Because the presence of God's abiding and how you respond to that will demonstrate what you truly value. And this passage will ask three questions of each one of us, the answers to which have eternity in the balance. The first question that our story asks is, what is more important to you, status or savior? What is more important to you? Is it your status or is it the savior? You know, the Gospel of Matthew has details that are provided that no other Gospel writer provides. And I mentioned last week that Matthew is doing so for a purpose. Isn't it interesting that in the other three Gospels, there is no mention of wise men? Isn't it interesting that in the Gospel of Matthew, there is no mention of shepherds and angels as it relates to Jesus' birth? Because Matthew, in the first five chapters of his gospel, is attempting to show the details of Jesus' life in parallel to the details of Israel from Egypt to the promised land to show that there are patterns that relate. To show that at the apex of Matthew 5.17, when Jesus said at the Sermon on the Mount, I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill it, that it is Jesus who is the true Israel. That's why Matthew provides the details of Jesus' birth the way that he does. And so with that as a backdrop, we now come to the account of the wise men and better are prepared to understand why Matthew includes what he does. There are two primary characters in this story that will relate to status. The first one is found in verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, would you look at the text with me? In the days of Herod, what? The king. This is not just historical detail. This is very important to the narrative. 
You see, Herod the king was the king of Israel, but what was interesting about Herod is that he was not a Jew. He was actually a descendant of Esau, not a descendant of Jacob. And so for Herod to be the king of the Jews, he actually needed help. And he gained that help diplomatically through Rome. Herod was extremely shrewd, and he would protect his status at all costs. He was a master of diplomacy. In fact, at one point in his reign, Rome was considering removing him from his throne. And so what Herod did is he actually traveled to Rome, and he diplomatically convinced them to give him the official title of the King of the Jews. This title was extremely important to Herod and to his sons. In fact, Herod Antipas, who was the Herod of Jesus' life, was so passionate about getting his father's title that he was willing to do whatever it took to achieve it, and he never did. Herod was given the title the king of the Jews through diplomacy, but he was also extremely shrewd in his violence. He was willing to execute anyone whom he was convinced was a threat to him. He killed a wife. He killed family members. He killed priests. He killed wealthy leaders in Israel, willing to do whatever was necessary to protect his status. What is most interesting is that Matthew says that there were visitors from where? What does it say in the text? These visitors came from the east. This would have been extremely vivid for the original audience. You see, the East, in the days of this writing, were the people of Parthia, or the Parthians. The Parthian Empire was an empire that lasted for about 500 years, and it was next to impossible to defeat. In fact, so powerful were the Parthians that the kings were known as the king of kings. Isn't that interesting? The Parthians were so successful in establishing their empire that by the time Rome came and tried to defeat the Parthians, the Parthians actually had to negotiate, or the Romans had to negotiate with the Parthians and said, Parthians, you can advance as far as you want to the east, you just can't go to the west. They came to that agreement. These were the people that are described as the east. In fact, during the reign of Herod, one of the greatest military threats to his throne were from the Parthians. So when there was a knock on the door in Jerusalem, and the door was open, and people wearing the garbs of Parthia announced themselves, they were looking for the king of the Jews, you can imagine Herod was troubled. In fact, it says in verse 3, that he was troubled in all Jerusalem with them. Why? Because Jerusalem knew what happened when Herod was troubled. In fact, this is a foreshadowing to verses 16 through 18, when Herod, at all costs to protect his status, orders the execution of all male children to and under in the region of Bethlehem. When the presence of the Messiah was presented to the king of the Jews, his quest for status was superior. But then the second group of main characters are introduced to us in verse 1. These are the wise men from the east. In the Greek, these are the magi. 
The Magi were from the priestly order of the Parthians. They were known for their amazing abilities to counsel, to discern the times, to be able to discern the future. And they used astrology and the evaluation of the heavenly bodies for that. They used academics. They used philosophy. They used science. They were, they were highly sought after by the kings of the ancient world. In fact, you can read Daniel and see that there were magi that consulted the kings of the Babylonian and Medo-Persian empires. These wise men were extremely powerful. They were extremely important. They had as high a status just below the king that men could have of their day. They came to the east. They came from the east as the upper crust of society. You know, as Americans, we quest for status, don't we? And I think we take this for granted because as compared to the rest of the world, as compared to other historical generations, no one has ever been quite like the American experience. The American experience essentially offers to anyone, no matter what your background is, the opportunity for status. You can work hard. You can pursue academics. You can have a decent video camera and editing capabilities and make a lucrative salary on YouTube. The quest for status as Americans is something that most of us take for granted. But beloved, listen, this is intrinsic to human nature. In fact, I invite you to write down Genesis 3, 5, and you can go back there. But at the root of the temptation from the serpent to Eve was not the color of the fruit, not the taste of the fruit, but the status that the fruit could provide. If you eat it, you will be like God, the serpent said. And beloved, status is something that is thrown in our faces as Americans constantly. It shows up in the neighborhood that you live in. It shows up in the car that you drive. It shows up on the letters after your name on your business card, the position at your career pursuit. Your bank account, the prestige of the school that you can send your children to, the rhythm of your life that you can take vacations and where you take vacations. Status is constantly something that society appeals to. And beloved, there is a lot of shiny objects that the world offers us. But I can tell you this, everything the world offers that glitters is not true gold. Would you write that down? Everything that this world offers us that glitters is not true gold. The entire book of Ecclesiastes is the purpose of Solomon trying to argue that. But as Americans... We are tempted to think all of that glittering will somehow satisfy. And so we are presented by the illustration of Herod the king and these Gentile magi of when presence of God was offered them, the response that both of them provided is a contrast between status and savior. How can you tell if status is driving you? Well, the first question you can ask yourself is, what do you do when your status is threatened? What do you do when your status is threatened? Listen, beloved, my point that I'm trying to drive at, please don't miss this, is there's nothing wrong intrinsically with status. What's wrong is when status drives you. 
There's nothing wrong with having nice things. There's nothing wrong with having positions of prominence. There's nothing wrong with having letters after your name with degrees. There's nothing wrong with that unless you are driven by that. Herod was driven by that. And how can we tell? Well, look at the way Matthew unpacks the details. The Magi ask, where is he who is born king of the Jews? That's a distinction that Herod didn't want to hear. Herod was king of the Jews because someone in authority over him gave him that title. But this individual that the Magi were pursuing is intrinsically king of the Jews because he was born that. So how did Herod respond? Well, verse 4, he assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people and inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And at this point, it looks like he's interested in the Savior, doesn't he? He understood who who is born king of the Jews is Messiah. That's what the word Christ means. And so he grabs the experts in theology, the experts in scripture, and says, where is Messiah supposed to be born? And the scribes say, in Bethlehem of Judea. And now he has the information that he needs, but he's going to focus on status over Savior. Look at verse 7. He summons the wise men secretly. This means that he did not want the scribes or any other Jew to hear this. He brings these Gentiles into a private chamber to have a conversation with him to present something other than what was real. And what he presents is a motive of worship. He says, go and search diligently, verse 8, for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. He appears that he's focused on worship, but he's focused on status. So what do you do when your status is threatened? But another way you can evaluate whether or not you are driven by status is, ask this question, when You are required to lay aside comfort. How do you respond? When you're required to lay aside comfort, we we live in a comfortable culture. We live in a world that if our temperature is off, we just ask Alexa to change it. Heaven forbid right now your stomach is growling. We live in a culture of comfort. So, So what do you and I do when that comfort is threatened. These magi lived a life of comfort, which in the ancient world, only a few small percentage of people had any hope of experiencing that. And yet, when they saw the star and they realized, comparing the scriptures of the Jews with the prophecies of the Old Testament, they knew they had to be in that child's presence, and they were willing to invade their comfort. How do I know that? Because it was hundreds of miles from Parthia to Bethlehem. And in the ancient world, you don't have somebody drive you. In the ancient world, you don't hop on a plane. You travel those hundreds of miles in the daytime, at the nighttime, over mountains, through valleys, with the threat of thieves and robbers. And listen, we know the story, don't we? What was the bounty that they were carrying? It was the bounty of kings. There was tremendous risk and threat to the comfort of the Magi, but their objective in verse 2 was they came to worship. Isn't that awesome? Now, I submit to you that their primary 
focus was to worship a king, but we see by the vocabulary that Matthew provides here that they understood this was more than a king. And see, their primary focus was not their individual status, but their privilege of worshiping a savior. I'll ask the team to put a quote up on the screen. Worship demonstrates willful submission to a superior value. Worship demonstrates a willful submission to a superior power. Beloved, I hope that your motivation for being here this morning. All of us woke this morning with competing temptations. I had a long weekend. It was dark in the room. My family was asleep. I thought about phoning a friend. You know what's funny, though, is that if you get a call from the pastor on Sunday morning, people don't answer. (laughs) But whatever your temptation was, maybe it's Raiders week, I am amazed at how many people are here with a 12 o'clock kickoff. Don't worry, I'll get you out in time. But beloved, worship is more than words to a song. Worship is more than music. Worship is more than event. It is a demonstration of a willful submission to something superior. These magi, as important, wealthy, prominent people, were willing to take this journey across crazy terrain at great risk to their comfort to worship this child. Friends, what evidence in your life gives evidence to the fact that you have willful submission to a superior value that is Christ? Verse 2 says they came to follow the star. We don't know what the star was. Man, we want to know what the star was, don't we? I even saw an article by John Piper this last week. Was the star supernatural? And it's fun to talk about, but that's not the point of the text. The point of the text is that supernaturally, God used something in the sky to move these astrologers to come to Jerusalem and then to Bethlehem. They knew, most likely, Numbers 24, 17, that something in the heavens would be associated with Messiah when he would be born. And so the question in looking at Herod and the wise men is a question for you and a question for me. What is most important? Is it status or the Savior? Number two, what is more important, enough or everything? Again, the details are important, especially for the original audience, but they should be for us. And beloved, let me just say right now, this is why it is important to take historical context into consideration. See, I just demonstrated this to you as a church family. I just said Raiders week, and most of you, including a couple of you with some jerseys on, understand what that means. I don't have to explain in great detail the history of the rivalry and the great players that have played with the Raiders and the Chiefs and all of the different places that the Raiders have gone to try to find a home and and the Chiefs have stayed in one place. I don't have to explain all that to you. And that's what the Bible often does. The Bible uses phrases that that original audience would have known without greater expectation, without more explanation, what was behind this, but we have to do a little bit more work, don't we? And so let's do that work to see that an important phrase is from the east, because when you go back to Genesis, you see that from the east is an important phrase. 
In fact, let me give you some verses. You can look these up later. Genesis 3.24. After Adam and Eve disobeyed the command of God and were cast out of the Garden of Eden, God put an angel at the east entrance, meaning that he cast Adam and Eve to the east of the Garden. Genesis 11, verse 2. It wasn't just the building of the tower that was reason why God judged the people at the Tower of Babel. It was because they had not fulfilled the command of God to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And what did they do? They settled in the east. Genesis chapter 13, verses 11 and 12, when Abram and Lot were going to split, Abram said, if you go to the right, I'll go to the left. And what did Lot choose? He chose the east. Abram chose the west. The East in the Old Testament was often a description of people who were outside the covenant promise of God. And so here the contrast is vivid. Here the contrast is that the king of the Jews, the king of the people of God, actually was so focused on status that he wanted to destroy the Savior. And the Gentiles, the Magi, outside of the covenant promises of God, were not interested in status. They just wanted to come and worship the Savior. What a contrast that is. Now, again, let's put ourselves in the historical context. The Magi had traveled all of these hundreds of miles. They arrived at the info desk at Jerusalem. They came to the king. They assumed that if the child was going to be born, that he would be born in the palace, that he would be born to the family of the king. So they came to the experts and they asked, where is this child that we have come to worship? And the scribes and Herod say, you still got more to go. We don't like to hear that, do we? In fact, people are wired different, aren't they? Some of you maybe have seen Free Solo, Alex Honnold. My palms are getting sweaty just thinking about his climb up El Capitan. But the fact that that guy even did that and the fact that when he was done, he's like, I'm ready to do it again, means that guy was wired differently, is wired differently, thankfully. So I'm wired a little bit differently. I enjoy driving across country. My family, on the other hand, not so much. And we got to experience that this last week as we drove to Louisville, which by the way, thank you again as a church family for the support of me and my family as I've pursued this degree and now it's done and I just celebrate God's faithfulness and your support. But we are driving back from Louisville and I just love driving cross country. I love the open road. I love the unwritten rules of the road where the semis are supposed to flash to let you know that you can come back in and then you hit your your warning lights. My dad taught me that. And as we were driving back, the sky in the west started getting very dark. My girls do not like storms. I, on the other hand, in fact, we had a tornado here several years ago. My family was in the basement. I was up taking videos. And so my girls, they come to me as the expert. And they said, Dad, it's getting dark. Are there going to be storms? And I made this declaration. It's December, kids. There's never violent storms. Well, a few moments later, Our phones are going crazy. There's a tornado warning. We started hearing through the windows. Like, that's never something that you want to hear. And so questions started to being asked of the expert. Hey, Dad, I thought you said... So we decided we were going to stop 
where there was a Von Mar, large building. You go to the center of the building. We're having horizontal rain. You can hardly see. We said, okay, on the count of three, we're going to run, go inside, get to the center of the building, open the door. Kids ran. Von Mar's closed. So they all come back in. It's, they're soaked. The, the van is soaked. And, and so dad is like strike two, which if you're not a baseball person, you only get three. And so I had one last pitch. And I'm looking at the radar, and my brother's a meteorologist, and so he's taught me how to look at the radar. There were no hooks. There was this thin ribbon where we were, and I said, okay, girls, we're going to go through it. That was not dad of the year decision, but we made it. But I can tell you, with all of those sirens, with all of that rain, with all of those emergency alert warnings, even I was saying, enough is enough. And friends, I think that sometimes the way we approach Christianity, how much is enough? I'm willing to do until I say it's enough. I'm fine with Christianity until it demands more than what I'm willing to give. It's interesting that the wise men didn't say, what is enough? The measure of success for the wise men was when everything was spent. It says in verse 9, after they listened to the king, they continued on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They understood that the pursuit of worship is not a matter of enough. It's a matter of everything. Friends, in Christianity, Jesus has two titles that are extremely important when it comes to salvation. The first one is Savior, and I have to tell you, almost every human being at least acknowledges that they're attracted to a Savior, that someone could save them from their current state, save them from judgment, is attractive to most human beings. And most human beings will acknowledge that they are sinners. Most human beings will acknowledge that there is a greater power. Most human beings would acknowledge that the contrast between the greater power and we as sinners means that we're not in a good place. And most would acknowledge that that not good place is a place of judgment. And so to hear that someone could actually save them from their sin, save them from judgment, save them to heaven and eternal life is attractive to most human beings. But the other title is equally important, and they both go hand in hand, and that is Lord. And that is not just some title of aristocracy in England. It is a title of kingship. It is a title of authority. And beloved, you can't have one without the other. You can't have a savior unless he has become king of your life. And friends, we can't have one foot in Christianity and one foot in the world, one foot in the spirit and one foot in the flesh. It is everything that God requires of us. And so my question to you is, have you given everything? Now I have to tell you that none of us can say 100% we are perfect in this. None of us here or watching online can say that the motivation for coming to church today was 100% pure. And so we are given passages like this to continue to grow our understanding. 
continue to grow our affections, to continue to analyze our motives, and to be able to evaluate, are we in Christianity for the enough, or are we in Christianity to be all in? Christianity is about everything, and the wise men give evidence of that. Friends, I can promise you this from the Bible and from my own experience, that if you hunger to grow in your knowledge of this, if you hunger for the presence of God, even if it is small, and you pursue the fulfillment of that hunger, God will grow your hunger. He will fill you. In fact, I love that verse in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled not with, I'm done, it's enough, but with a greater hunger. Isn't that awesome? See, our bellies hunger to be satisfied so that we're not hungry anymore. The woman at the well hungered for a water that would remove any desire for physical hunger anymore, but that's not what God provides for us in the Spirit. He satisfies our hunger with a greater hunger. Are you growing in your hunger? See, the wise men didn't fully get it. They didn't fully comprehend who this child was, that they came to be in his presence, but they were growing. And they were hungering. What is more important to you? Enough or everything? Number three, what is more important, wealth or worship? Wealth or worship. Verse 11 gives us some details. It says they went into the house and they saw the child. If you take that combined with the rest of chapter two, it's a pretty good indication that Jesus was no longer an infant. He was no longer in a manger, although the nativities sure show that, don't they? My family puts out a nativity every year, and we we love them. My parents and and Sally's family have given us the little statues. My daughter said the other day, who stands like that? (laughs) One guy... But usually the nativity has shepherds, and it has wise men, but... Most likely, it was not concurrent. Most likely, Jesus at this point was somewhere close to the age of two. They were in a house. They had established a residency. But the wise men, in verse 11, come to the house. They saw the child with Mary, the mother. And their response, beloved, gives evidence of worship. And I want to pause here before I unpack this because I think as Americans, we are experts in the comparison game, aren't we? Social media is a great temptation for this. I've talked to teenagers who are in healthy dating relationships, who have had a healthy relationship, and all of a sudden they see a post on social media from some peers of theirs, and man, they're at a nicer place for a date. They have bigger smiles on their face. They have it all put together. Before you know it, the seeds of doubt of comparison are planted. Social media has people posting their new car, posting their new job, posting their new relationship status, posting their expecting children, posting, 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 comparison, comparison, comparison. But here's what I want us to see from this text. It's a quote I'll ask the team to put up on the screen. Worship is not so much about how much as much as it is about the who's. 
It's not so much about the how much. How much have you given? How much church have you gone to? How much have you prayed? How much, how much, how much? It's not about that. It's about the who's. Who is the worshiper and who is the object of worship? Those are the most important questions. And beloved, if you answer the who's questions right, the how much will all be taken care of. Let's unpack that by walking through the text. Four ways that we can see that the wise men were more passionate about worship than wealth. Number one, the object of their worship. The object of their worship was a child. Remember, in the ancient context, children would actually reduce your honor rather than increase it. And so these wise men, these wealthy, these prominent upper crash of society came with the object of worship of a child. Number two, the expression of their worship. The expression of their worship was that they fell down. Isn't that interesting? I mean, if you study Parthenian Empire history, you know that they were actually known for a distinct clothing. You can see it in the statues. You can see it in the reliefs. You can see that the the Parthians were known for their clothing. And so these men, in their regalia of honor, of respect, of prominence and importance, fell down on the ground before a child. This was undignified. And friends, what a great reminder this is that our worship is not about our dignity. Our worship is not about how it reflects on us. Our worship is about a posture of humility. Number three, the object, the expression, the sacrifice. The sacrifice, it says that they gave to him gifts. And I love that Matthew unpacks these three gifts. Now, a lot of ink has been spilled showing that, man, the king, the burial, the anointing, these are symbolic. I'll show you that I don't think that it is. But let's look at the gifts themselves. The gold from the beginning of time has been highly valued. In fact, you can write down Genesis chapter 2 and verse 11. Moses, in his account of creation, says that there is the area, the land of Havilah, and there is lots of gold there. So even in the earliest days of creation, gold was highly sought after. Frankincense, history tells us, was highly prized by the Egyptians for the embalming aspects. The Jews highly prized it for ceremonies of their worship. And then there's myrrh. Myrrh was an extremely valuable perfume that was used in anointing ceremonies. And so again, you can easily see how these can symbolically connect to different aspects of Christ. But I think when we look back at the historical context, you can write down 1 Kings chapter 10, verses 1 through 10, that when the king, queen of Sheba came to King Solomon, she actually brought him gold and spices. This is just an ancient expression of recognition of royalty. The combination of these gifts were reserved for gifts to royalty. So here, these wise men arrive at a house of peasants with a child and give presents that were sacrificed that were reserved exclusively for royalty. But then number four, another way that we can tell in our lives that worship is superior to wealth is patterns of obedience. 
patterns of obedience. Look at verse 12. It says, And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. And friends, again, I think we read this and we're like, this is part of the Christmas story. Of course they did. But consider the historical context. These men knew politics. And the king, who clearly had a history of getting upset and pronouncing execution judgment on people who upset him, had instructed them to return to him. And so these wise men see a messenger of the child, the the, the king that they were worshiping, in their dream that said, do not return to Herod. Under great risk, they obeyed. Beloved, this is another opportunity for you to evaluate. Is worship more important to you than wealth? You know, sometimes worship requires sacrifice, doesn't it? Sometimes worship requires us taking jobs that will not be as lucrative so that we can spend more time focusing on our family. Sometimes it means changing the priorities of our lives and not having kids in multiple sports so that we can make church and the body of Christ a priority. Sometimes the the increase of salary that God has given you is not to be able to spend it all, to be able to have more possessions, but to be more generous. And it goes on and on and on. But it is those realities and those responses to what you value that will demonstrate whether or not it is wealth that is more important or worship. So at this point, I invite you to bow your heads and close your eyes. The presence of a child in Bethlehem created ripples in the lives of important people. And it's an opportunity for us this morning to be able to evaluate in our lives what impact does the presence of God have on you. And your response to that will reveal how much you value him and how priceless he is to you. What is more important Your status or the Savior? What is more important, enough or everything? What is more important in your life, wealth or worship?